0: hello and welcome back to the breaching extinction podcast for those of you that are new here the breaching extinction podcast explores the plight of the endangered southern resident killer whales through interviews with the people trying to save them there are currently less than 80 southern resident killer whales left and they are currently threatened by lack of prey vessel noise and water toxins all of these factors impact one another and play a significant role in their population decline. They have historically spent much of their time in the Salish Sea, however they've been seen less and less likely forced out of their home by lack of prey as well as busy and toxic waters. I'm your host Erica Wirth and I decided to start this podcast in 2019 after spending a summer working in the Salish Sea and learning about these animals. Each week I dive into a new conversation with guests from varying perspectives. I approach these topics through an interdisciplinary lens in hopes of uncovering the intricacies of this complex issue. Through this, I hope to share insight as well as fit the puzzle pieces together needed to save this species. I hope you guys enjoy this podcast. If you have any questions or are interested in being featured on the podcast or sponsoring us, please reach out over Instagram at Breaching Extinction or send an email to info at breachingextinction.com. Thanks! hello everybody welcome back to the breaching extinction podcast hope you guys have had a wonderful two weeks um this week i chatted with deborah giles and colleen weiler about the protected areas where the southern residents are and some projects that colleen is working on in regard to renewable energy in said protected areas Um, I did have COVID when I was recording this episode and I had a bit of a brain fog. So um, shout out to both Giles and Colleen for carrying this episode because it was a little rough. So bear with me, guys. I did lose my train of thought a couple times, but I hope you guys definitely still benefit from it. Um, We do have some news um, in regards to Southern residents. So a um, journal article was published in the Canadian Journal of Fisheries and Aquatic Sciences titled Southern Resident Killer Whales encounter, ugh, encounter Higher Prey Densities Than Northern Resident Killer Whales During the Summer. Um, this article has received a lot of pushback and is highly controversial at this time. I am um, going to address more of that most likely in the next episode, a little bit on the poor episode coming out this Monday, um, but I'm going to put the link to that in this description, so go check that out. Also, in other super exciting news, um, Governor Inslee and Senator Murray want to answer questions on how to replace benefits of the Lower Snake River Dam. So um, this is pretty huge, considering that there has not been much conversation about this. And um, it seems like that there's a little bit of hope that this could happen. I am going to link the Seattle Times article there so that you guys can read more on that. And also this is something that I plan to address too in the poor episode on Monday. So, um, be looking out for that, but, um, yeah, definitely some things are happening here, um, in the Southern resident world. That would be amazing if we could get these dams down the co extinction film, um, is still premiering at different film festivals. So watch out for, different film festivals that they're going to because a lot of them you can stream online so definitely be uh, watching out for that as well and also you know with Governor Ensley being willing to address this now now is a better time than ever to make those calls write those letters uh, contact him and other officials in any way that you can and try to make your voice known about how you think the situation with the dams should be handled um but I hope you guys have a great week um, welcome everybody back to the Breaching Extinction podcast. This week I have Deborah Giles from Wild Orca, who's been on here many times, and then Colleen uh, Weiler, who's from Whale and Dolphin Conservation, who was on here early on. I feel like you were like I think one of my first fifteen or so, so that was a long time ago. Wow! <laughs> yeah, but excited to have you back. Um, and we're here to talk about critical habitat expansion. Um but how are you guys doing today? Good good excited to to be back on with you. Good, me too. Awesome. Um, so yeah, there was some some recent expansions into the Southern residence core habitat, and we're just here to talk about that today and kind of the history of that. Um, so Giles, can you kind of give us a history of the the critical habitat of the southern residents?
1: Yeah. So, um, thank you for having us, and uh, I'm really glad to be here with Colleen, too. We work together on the Orca Salmon Alliance um, and other things, and uh, she's been working a lot on this issue in California, so um, thanks for having both of us. Um, So, the southern residents, this is, as probably everybody knows, but just a quick recap, a a small population uh, of animals made up of three pods, J-pod, K-pod, and L-pod they're highly critical. They're considered one of the eight most critically endangered species on the endangered species list. Um, They were listed on the U.S. endangered species list in 2005 after several years, about five years of um, kind of back and forth between the federal government and nonprofit organizations um, who were calling for the whales to be listed. The whales finally did get listed in uh, November, November 18th of 2005. And um, that set into uh, motion a number of things that have to happen under the Endangered Species Act. Um, Being whales, they are administered by NOAA, National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, is responsible for most marine mammals. There are a couple of oddballs that the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service uh, is responsible for. But um, NOAA is responsible for not only the whales, but also their main prey, um, so the Chinook salmon that they rely on, as well as any other anadromous fish, so fish that go from the uh, freshwater into the marine realm uh, during their uh, growth period and then back into their nat- back to their natal spawning ground. So NOAA is in a really interesting position um, to be responsible for both the predator that's on the endangered species list as critically endangered as well as salmon, um, of which uh, some runs of Chinook salmon are also on the critically endangered uh, species list. So the whales got listed in 2005, and it took a little bit more time to set up the critical habitat. So when an, when an animal or plant even gets designated under the endangered species list, they, um, the, the federal government or this, you know, the whichever arm, sets up, what's called uh, its protected critical habitat. So that habitat that is that is required by that species to fulfill all of its life functions. And um, that did take some time. It, it was a year later in November of 2006 when the inland waters of the Salish Sea were designated in the United States as critical habitat for the Southern residents. Um, we can maybe get into what that means, what critical habitat um, means later, but um, I think uh, if, if if you want to, we can talk about that. Um, but I I want to kind of jump forward uh, to 2014. It was a long time. People, of course, were asking for the whales to be listed. I mean, sorry for the um, outer coast waters of the U.S. to be uh, designated as critical habitat for the southern residents as well. Um, you know, we those of us that study them and that you know are desperate for their recovery. We're really hoping that it would be right on the heels of the, or the original designation for the inland waters, but it really wasn't. It took a, a lawsuit, um, a petition from a nonprofit organization called the Center for Biological Diversity to petition the federal government to designate outer coast habitat as critical for the southern residents. And um, that petition was uh, filed in 2014. Usually these things go about 18 months to maybe 24 months, uh, depending on uh, calls for extra research or um, you know, just usually that's about the time. Two years is a, is a long time. This one took uh, six years. Uh, the critical habitat was just what? No, actually seven years. Uh, critical habitat was just designated finally in 2021 um, and um, in, on a positive note, uh, the, the petition was to da- down to Monterey, California, including the waters of Monterey Bay. Um, but when the, when the uh, ruling came back in and the, and the designation was given, uh, they actually, the federal government actually extended it to Point Sur, so a little bit farther south than Monterey, which was, I think, um, a surprise. Um, actually, let me take that back. I think the original petition was only to designate critical habitat to Point Reyes, mm-hmm. um, and it wasn't going to include Monterey Bay. And and many of us were frustrated by that because that meant that that whole mouth of the of the San Francisco Bay was not protected. And that's a an, that's a really important area. Um, historically, probably was a very important area for these whales, uh, given that they were uh, known to eat. Salmon from the Sacramento and American rivers, mm-hmm. which would migrate in and out of San Francisco Bay. So, um, point being is that it was a, a, a nice surprise that, to find that the federal government extended uh, the distance of the critical habitat, the space of the critical habitat, all the way down to Point Sur, California. So, that does encompass the Monterey Bay waters. So, um, I don't know how you want to handle this at this point. We could talk about what critical habitat means yeah how it protects animals Mm -hmm. do you want to jump in here now Colleen
2: yeah well I was going to jump in and and just note that um it's a really important part of the endangered species act and kind of the um a unique uh part of that law that is different from other environmental laws and that it does require the home of vulnerable species to be protected it doesn't require Um, it doesn't limit recovery actions to just things that directly impact listed species, uh, listed plants or animals. It also requires taking a look at the full extent of their habitat, what they need to survive and to recover, and making sure that those are protected as well. So it's, uh, especially for a law that was passed in the 70s, which, you know, predates a lot of the understanding that I think we had of um, how connected ecosystems are and how important certain elements are to endangered species or to you know any type of, any, any species endangered or not, that um, it does require this holistic look at protecting not just animals themselves and not just whales themselves, but also the parts of the environment that they rely on to survive. So this is a, it's a unique aspect of the ESA and it's a really important one for species recovery.
0: Awesome. Yeah, but it definitely, Sounds important. So, like, does that mean, like, it changes, like, basically what people can take from the environment or, like, the ways that they can interact in
1: those areas? Is that, like, essentially what happens? Yes, exactly. Um, And just to follow up on what Colleen was just saying, um, written into the uh, critical habitat uh, for the southern residents is wording that protects their prey. Um, that uh, allows for the federal government to say that uh, that of course it is that prey is a constituent uh, a, a very, very critical constituent part of the habitat that the whales rely on um, and that they and they need that as as uh, in order to recover. And so this is um, theoretically would give us a little bit more leverage to um, push for protections for, the fish themselves, and also the habitat that the fish require. So it's almost like by default, um, really the federal government should be looking at the constituent parts of the habitat that the prey rely on. Um, Separate from the fact that, as I mentioned, several of the runs of salmon that these whales have co-evolved with are also on the endangered species list. So that triggers protections for their habitat as well but even those fish that are not listed on the endangered species list um, are theoretically to to be considered if it would any sort of harm to them would result in harm to the whales um and harm meaning not being present in their their environment Mm. which is interesting
0: yeah that is really interesting um you mean the fish not being present in their environment or people not being
1: present in their environment? Um, well, no. So so if the fish are overfished or, um, or the numbers of fish become too low to support the the southern residents, then there theoretically would be triggers within the Endangered Species Act yeah. um, that protects the whales and is meant to recover the whales. Um, some... there there should be and could be more leverage in that act to to say the fish themselves need to be protected because the whales need them to survive. That's part of their constituent, the main things that they need in their environment to survive. And so because the whales are listed on the the endangered species list and now because they have designated critical habitat, um, their prey being part of that habitat is also protected. That's awesome. It's a little confusing, but yeah, it, but it's actually a really, the Endangered Species Act is an amazing act. Just the very fact that the whales themselves were able to be listed um, as a distinct population segment under the Endangered Species Act makes that act worth its weight in gold. Um, because uh, it was originally argued that because the southern residents are part of a, a the, the single Taxonomic classification of Orcinus orca. All killer whales on the planet are considered Orcinus orca. The federal government originally said, "There's pl- basically, in a nutshell, there's plenty of other killer whales on the planet, and they're they're the same species. So there's there's no need to protect them." Well, that's when the Center for Biological Diversity was able to push that or turn that knob um, to say, "Well, actually, they're a distinct population segment. We know that now from genetics." Um, we knew it from observation that they didn't intermingle, but not, then, then we knew it from genetics that they're actually distinct enough to be considered a subpopulation. And so that's an amazing part of the act as well, just the fact that you can list a sub, subgroup, uh, subportion, it's called a DPS or distinct population segment, um, and give protections to that species, which really ultimately ends up overflowing and having positive impacts for other animals that also occur in that habitat. Um, because being, having critical habitat means that any behaviors or any activities um, that need federal approval, and Colleen will get into this a little bit more with regard to what's happening in California, um, have to, has to go through a, a rulemaking and um, pretty, pretty heavy um, analysis of how any sort of activity may jeopardize the recovery of the of the listed endangered species so that's where we find ourselves right now um, let, let me just quickly pause to say also there are a couple of there are a couple of areas that are um, theoretically in the area that would have naturally been included in the in the um critical habitat that are excluded and those are areas that have to do with military. So we have in the inland waters here, off of Whidbey, we've got a, a an area that is not included in the critical habitat, yeah. as well as at off the outer coast of uh, Washington, um, in the Navy testing range out there. That is also not um, not considered part of the Southern residents' critical habitat, which is a shame because the whales we now know are using that same overlapping area quite a bit um especially now with uh, so few fish in the inland waters right wow
0: yeah that's um sorry I'm like having like the foggiest brain right now I think it's because of the COVID um but yeah no that's <laughs> really interesting I'm like I just lost my train of thought um oh so okay so if they can't like so does that mean the military basically just kind of gets to do what they want in those areas or anybody kind of gets to do what they want um, in like the areas that are military? It's not that anybody gets to do what
2: they want. Um, as, as Giles mentioned, what critical habitat does is requires any activity, um, no matter who or what is conducting that activity. If it requires a federal permit or federal funding Um, or any approval in any way by the federal government, it goes through this extra layer of review. Mm. So um, for the Navy, it is federal activity, but the Department of Defense um, kind of gets precedence over anything, including endangered species recovery, unfortunately, Um, which means that in certain areas where they do training and testing, that are exempt from critical habitat, they don't have to go through that extra layer of review. Yeah. They can continue with their activities um, without having uh, to go through that process. And that there is a different process that the Navy still does have to go through to analyze it's, it's the uh, impacts of its activities on marine mammals, including Southern resident orcas. So that is still, you know something that is examined and not as protective as we would all prefer that it be um, but having the critical habitat exemption just means that they don't have to do that review plus another one or consider the impacts on the habitat itself and those essential features that are important for southern residents survival and recovery um, no one yeah on, on the can anyone do what they want in those exempted areas Nobody's going to go into a training and testing range just because the Navy <laughs> wouldn't, wouldn't allow it anyway. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, but the the Navy activities are really the concern in that area. And the the good news on that um, between the draft revision, which was published in uh, December of twenty nineteen, and the final rule for the critical habitat expansion, they did actually reduce the size of that exempted area for the Navy off the coast. It wasn't a huge reduction in the size, but they, the uh, NIMS was responsive to, you know, input and comments from the public and from conservation organizations that pointed out how important that area was to the Southern Resident Orcas and how it wasn't, you know, the Navy's activities should still be considered um, for how they're impacting the orcas in habitat. And so they did actually reduce the size of that exemption a little bit. Okay. Small win, minor victory, but a good one. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> yeah.
1: They're also <clears throat> when they're conducting activities like that they are supposed to do there are some very basic measures that they're supposed to undertake to assure that ensure that there are not whales in the immediate vicinity um but that's that can be difficult uh um out there uh in the outer coast when you know these waves can be you know huge. You can you can be, I've been out there on a big Navy, uh, not a Navy ship, but a NOAA ship, um, and you can get lost in a trough and not see anything else around you, um, and this is a massive ship, and, and even something that big can be lost. So small, small whales uh, could, could easily be, uh, by comparison, small whales could be easily overlooked. Um, but they are supposed to do scanning uh, and not supposed to um, detonate any sort of underwater acoustics or explosives or sonar or anything like that if the whales were seen in a certain period of time prior to when they want to do that. Um, what, one thing um, I do want to point out, uh, the the military base on Whidbey is an Air Force base, and the concern with what's happening there um, is, is that uh, they routinely fly these very, very fast um, jets that can break the sound barrier and They're called growlers because when you're underneath them, it just feels like the earth is shaking, and it it's it's a crazy sound. And a recent study that came out um, showed that the sound underwater can be as loud um, as some other navy activities. Um, The sound coming from the from the sky can be trans transferred to into the water and can be as loud as some of the navy activities. And yet, there's no um, there's right now there's no uh, regulations about that. And in fact, uh, just yesterday, I think um, there's more information on wild orca and uh, I'll be going there to review it myself when this call is over, but they've just been approved. I do believe they've just been approved for 300 more flights, uh, annual flights, um, 300 additional on top of all of them that they're already um, flying. And so, um, <clears throat> those, those activities in that, that region are, uh, are exempted from the, the, any sort of harm that might come from, um, from those activities to the whales, which is a shame. Um, but, um, I was really, uh, hoping to, uh, just c- to help you out with your COVID brain. I, I'm everyone so shocked that, uh, um, just impressed that you're actually sitting here doing this with us. So, um, uh, can, can we punt it to Colleen to talk about what's happening in California and, uh, yes. um, uh, you know things, things, activities that are people are wanting to do down there that that may may have. Yeah.
2: So uh, kind of going back to what we were talking about for critical habitat and how it adds this extra layer of review to any activities that require federal approval. Um, we are seeing the development of offshore wind facilities start to ramp up off the west coast. It's. California is the furthest ahead in that process, but it is happening in Oregon and Washington as well. Um, and this is definitely, it's a little bit of a, of a mixed bag of, of things because certainly renewable energy is really important for addressing the um, umbrella threat of climate change and fossil fuel development that is already having an impact on salmon um, and we will probably see even more of an impact in the future. So that's, you know, an overarching need to address that and make sure that salmon and orcas, you know, have a healthy ocean in the future. Um, But these offshore wind facilities really need to be responsibly sited and put in areas where they are not going to have a negative impact on already vulnerable species. Um, So that includes reviewing uh, their impacts on habitat and that critical habitat, both for Southern resident orcas and actually humpback whales um, recently just had critical habitat designated off the West Coast as well. So all of these developing wind energy project projects that are in federal waters um, that might overlap or come very close to these critical habitat areas are going to have to consider what the impacts will be On the whales and on those essential features, um, and put in extra mitigation measures or take extra steps to make sure that they're not increasing harm to to these species. And regardless of where they're sited, the cable routes, so connecting these offshore wind facilities to some place on land where that electricity gets transferred in, are going to cross um, critical habitat because they. You know they go from offshore to land so there's there's going to be some type of development that will impact um habitat and they're going to have to go through this extra layer of review to figure out what the impacts might be hmm.
0: when is this like when are are they supposed to start reviewing this
2: uh, they already are so two there are currently three um identified areas it's <laughs> It is a very long process. The good news is like, this is still um, a a very, you know, there's there's lots of opportunities to weigh in and make sure the Southern residents are considered through this process, Um, but it is something that is happening. So there are three proposed sites uh, in California, like areas that have been identified for offshore wind development. Oregon is in the process of looking at what areas might be good for offshore wind development. And Washington has, um, it it hasn't, I think, officially been uh, submitted to the federal government yet, but they have what's called an unsolicited lease request, which means a a company that wants to build offshore wind. They went ahead and identified their own area. Um, It can either be, you know, developers come in and they see a spot that they like, and then they ask the federal government for permission essentially to put a wind farm there, or the federal government moves things forward on its own and identifies areas and then puts a call out for if any developers are interested in building in that area. Mm. So We have a little bit of a mix of both on the West Coast. Um, California has one unsolicited lease request and then two areas that the federal government identified. Oregon is still uh, in that in-between stage of first just figuring out where potential sites are for wind development and then Washington has a company that is interested in developing, but I don't think they've submitted their request to the federal government yet. Um, and I will note on the Washington one, uh, it, it will be in Southern Resident Critical Habitat, um, it's off Grace Harbor, and um, definitely a, a concerning area for any type of development because of the potential impacts to Southern Resident workers. So that one, um, you know, again, We need renewable energy to fight climate change, but it has to be cited really, really carefully so that it doesn't have a a net negative impact on species while we head towards that goal of addressing climate change. For sure.
1: Yeah. I have a question for you. Is the reason, do you think the reason that they want to locate these in the ocean so with, I'm I'm envisioning them looking a lot like the the oil um, rigs in Southern California. These massive, uh, you know, structures that are in the ocean. Um, is the reason for that because there's nobody that wants to donate their land or buy? That you know, the it, land is too precious to, to locate the wind farms on land. Like why why put them in the ocean?
2: Yeah, there's there. That's a good question, and it you know, it is happening concurrently with um, renewable development on land. So it's not one or the other, it's both. And the reasoning for offshore wind, unfortunately, especially on the West Coast, is that uh, over water, it tends to be stronger wind and more consistent. So on land you get um, good wind, but it's not always the same speed or same power at all times. Um, And you might have, you know, ebbs and flows and, and, energy development and electricity produced but offshore it's a pretty steady and pretty strong uh you know you've you've been out there so (laughs) you know how windy i mean you both have been out on boats out on the water and it gets windy and it's pretty consistent so it's it's a um a good source to tap into as far as renewable energy resources go and uh Again, off the Pacific, um, you know, this is all happening on the on the East Coast as well, very very quickly, and there's kind of other other issues over there, and we have North Atlantic right whales to consider, and humpbacks over there as well. But um, those those offshore wind projects, uh, Giles, will look a lot like the offshore rigs um, off Southern California in that they're they're. Uh, set on foundations and like they are stable surfaces in the ocean so those involve a lot more noise and a lot more construction activity to to place off the west coast because we have you know a pretty steep continental shelf that comes up really quickly and very deep waters um, they're looking at floating offshore platforms which means platforms that hold the turbines themselves are anchored to the bottom with anchors. They're not um, on these concrete foundations Um, and that is is a big question mark because there are not very many. I think there's two um, floating offshore wind platforms in existence off of Scotland and off of um, Portugal and Maine is working on uh, building a test facility for that but we really have no idea, um, you know, there's, there's no prior information or knowledge on How these type of wind facilities might impact marine mammals, especially um, large whales and uh, and orcas, because there's just they haven't coexisted anywhere before.
0: That's a lot of things to consider. Mm -hmm. I'm assuming, like with the different whales, we have to you know take different precautions because they behave in specific ways. Um, I didn't realize that we had right whales, um, on the West coast.
2: We do. We have North Pacific right whales actually, uh, that are very, very endangered. And they're, they're on that, that list of other things we really need to consider with any projects, um, over here. And then of course the North Atlantic right whales are a little more well-known, also critically endangered, um, for different reasons and in different ways than the Southern residents. But, um, Yeah, two, two very endangered species that are kind of facing, uh, both trying to figure out how offshore wind may impact them and how to avoid those impacts.
0: For sure. Um, so they haven't actually put any of the wind farms in yet. We're just like in the initial phase. Um, does it seem like there are going to be like non-invasive ways of installing these or, um, is it, or not like necessarily installing them. Of course, like it's gonna be like annoying and noisy, but like once they're there, is it like, does it seem like there's gonna be a way that we can have them there without impacting the animals?
2: I mean, that's that's the big unknown because again, these, these floating facilities, um, the benefit I think of floating offshore wind is that they're less noisy to install um, the, the stable foundations require like pile driving, which is really noisy and more intense construction to get them out there. Um, the floating ones is, you know, they're they're anchored, so it's dropping an anchor. Um, so less noisy construction, but again, this is the big question mark of how are marine mammals going to respond to these massive brand new structures in their habitat that they've never seen before? Right. What you know, what impact is that going to have on the ocean floor, which is the source of a lot of, uh, you know, nutrients and food and has a lot of food web implications. Um, those are the big question marks of just like, it's, it's not been done before. And so it's, it's unknown. Um, so the conservation groups that are working on these issues are really highlighting like the need for, lots and lots and lots of monitoring before, during, uh, through every stage of the process and being really prepared to change things as needed. If an impact is observed, that was unexpected or, or, uh, like we don't have a a way to mitigate them, then put a stop to it.
0: That makes sense. Um, are there like other areas where they could put the wind farms if, Th- this doesn't work out, like another place that's a little bit less invasive?
2: Um, I don't know. I mean, like for for here off Oregon, uh, where they're still in the process of figuring out where to put offshore wind farms specifically, um, it's definitely, you know, again, the conservation groups are asking or noting where there are really important marine mammal areas and like, just don't put them there. Put them somewhere else that's that makes probably sense. going to be less invasive, like uh, important feeding areas for humpbacks or for the Southern residents off the mouth of the Columbia River.
1: Um, that's a really
2: important foraging area for them. So, you know, maybe just add that site to the list of we're not gonna put wind farm here.
1: Mm-hmm. Makes sense. Yeah, it's this really interesting uh, conundrum because we do need to be moving to uh, you know, getting away from fossil fuel uh, use and using these you know green technologies, uh, you know, in the long term is uh, going to benefit every everything and everybody. Mm-hmm. Um, where we're not producing, uh, you know, the the waste that we are right now and the destruction, the overall destruction of the uh, habitat. By ex- extracting these natural resources, um, so it's like the weighing the long-term benefits for all whales uh, against the shorter-term potential harms to um, current whales or whales that are that are alive during the time that these are that these are installed, assuming that they go in and they're actually functional and that they're not causing uh, catastrophic. Um, you know, harm to, to the population. I mean, and we don't know it's the right now, the Southern residents, because they have that critical habitat, they're the ones that are being, and, and the humpbacks now um, being their, their habitat use um, style, I guess, is being, will be con- heavily considered, which I think is really good. You know, those two types of animals use habitat very differently. So, because there's uh, that, so that will be a lot of considerations that have to go into um, into site, uh, site location. And, and, um, and like Colleen, Colleen said, monitoring is going to be really, really important, um, for this. And so the, that's, uh, I, my brain immediately went like, oh, jobs for people that want to do marine mammal monitoring, uh, which, you know, we, we need those highly trained people that know what they're looking for and, and can make, um, really important um observations uh during this this process so um yeah it's hard uh here in the in the inland waters there was a um an interest in putting underwater turbines in admiralty inlet uh admiralty inlet is the uh very it's a a bottleneck sort of area uh between the broader say Salish Sea, uh, and then going down south into South Sound towards uh, Seattle, and uh, that's an area that is highly, highly productive. There's a lot of, a lot of water movement in that area, and from a um, energy generation standpoint, that would have been an amazing site to put uh, underwater turbines for energy production. But um, it's such a constricted area um, that, and it's kind of one of those things that if you put it in and you know um anyway suffice it to say that's not happening uh anymore as far as i know it's off the off the books but um so underwater uh, energy production is is another possibility um colleen have you heard much about those uh it's like floating uh a floating mm-hmm. situation where just the movement of the waves is creating the energy those ones were really yeah. interesting to me to think of, too, because it's taking up surface area that that, you know, whales have to come up to breathe. And, and uh, I just was wondering what your thoughts on the, that um, infrastructure is.
2: Yeah, we actually have a test facility for those are called wave energy. So all types of uh, different ways to use the ocean for energy, the, the turbine, um, underwater, like tidal energy, wave energy, which are like long booms that sit on top of the water and go up and down with the waves and generate generate energy that way and then the the turbines offshore Um, but we do have a a test facility um, going in just south of me like five miles south of me and seven miles offshore um, here in oregon and that's something that was maybe a decade in the making it was um, a hot topic when I was in grad school, we did many a practice debate and pros and cons exercise on on wave energy. Um, so, again, this is where that monitoring uh, really comes into play and putting in the resources and the time and the very careful data collection before, during and, you know, the eventual decommissioning of these projects to better understand the impacts that they might have. Um, This wave energy facility, uh, yeah, as you noted, it's it's on the surface of the water. Um, Whales come up to the surface. We have a a population of gray whales here that feed pretty close to shore uh, that might be interacting with those cables that are connecting it to shore um, or the cables that anchor those booms to the bottom. So that's definitely a concern Um, You know, it's, and it's, again, just that question mark of we don't know how marine mammals are going to interact with these structures that are brand new and in their habitat. Um, I do imagine sea lions are probably going to try to haul out on them because sea lions will jump on any, (laughs) any flat surface in the ocean that they can climb on. Um, But how, you know, how large whales, are they going to avoid the area? Are they going to... Um, you know, learn to live with it or adapt to it like that's just we just have no idea so that monitoring throughout and and paying attention and putting in um, those resources from the federal government uh, to watch things and to collect information is really, really important.
0: Absolutely. Yeah, no, that is really interesting. Um, it just kind of made me think like, you know, when people started taking ships out on the water and all these other things, like we've definitely grown so much from like going from, I'm just going to like be a pirate on the ocean and like take out whatever I want and, you know, go whaling and impact (laughs) animals and all these ways to now we're like, okay, so we want to have renewable energy, but like, we still need to be conscious of wildlife. It's just like, so interesting to see that shift, which is a good shift. We, we like it. That's how it should be. But interesting. Yeah.
2: And we're, we're really pushing the federal government to <laughs> take
0: that approach.
2: So um, yeah, unfortunately on the East Coast, it, it, again, it's it's like there's some good, some bad. The developers uh, for the most part of these offshore wind facilities have have been fairly proactive in putting some really strong monitoring and mitigation measures in place that are actually go beyond what National Marine Fisheries Service is requiring. So there's a lot of frustration with nymphs as not being um, protective enough in their required mitigation measures but these developers who uh, you know are supposedly in it because they want to help save the planet and make a better world um, <laughs> or or at least you know make some money doing so um, are being more proactive in you know what are the concerns of the conservation community how can we best address them um, how can we develop these without or with minimal impacts on at-risk wildlife. And hopefully we see the same thing uh, over here on the West Coast. We do have um, different developers and different projects out here, but you know there is a precedent set now. So ideally it would continue forward and ideally the government, again, steps up and requires those really strong protective measures as these projects move forward.
0: Definitely. Awesome. Um, yeah that's really important um do you know when we might have some like answers as far as like if they're going to be able to do it i'm sure that this timeline is pretty open-ended since there's a lot of unknowns
2: yeah uh it it's it's going to be a while we just um submitted information on uh those california projects to um Bureau of Ocean Energy Management, BOEM, which is the, there's a lot of federal governments and acronyms, um, but BOEM is the one that oversees the energy development and the NIMS has to make sure that the impacts are reduced for marine mammals. So uh, some some pretty detailed and hefty uh, comments and recommendations and requests for data collection monitoring just went in last month, Um, and now BOEM has to take some time to review them, and then they will Um, come out with the next stage in the process, but it's, you know, it's, it's going to be a few years um, in, in any stage, California, Oregon, and Washington over here um, before we start to see like what the federal government is, is really planning on.
0: Okay. That makes
1: sense. And people will have an opportunity several times during the process to weigh in with public comment. So you can, uh, for sure, on Wild Orca, check Wild Orca's website. We'll probably have a link. And then uh, I would think that Whale and Dolphin Conservation would too. Awesome.
0: Um, Yeah, this is all like very exciting and interesting stuff. Um, And was there more that you wanted to touch on, Giles, with the protected
1: areas in California? Um, No. I, I don't think so, I'm just really thrilled that we finally have critical habitat uh, extended all the way down there throughout the southern residence range. <clears throat> you know you guys might see them uh I hope uh, you guys get a southern resident sighting this winter that would be amazing mm-hmm. um down there in monterey um, yeah, I just think that it's uh it was a long time coming, and i'm I'm really happy that it's that it's in place <laughs> it feels it feels a lot safer now <laughs> for them, yeah. Definitely. Yeah. Yeah.
2: Um, it was a long road to get there, but I'm, I'm glad we ended up with a more protective rule than I think anyone was expecting. So kudos kudos to NIMS for that. Well,
1: it's, it's interesting. Yeah, it's interesting when it comes to the Southern residents, the federal government um, has erred on the side of caution twice now. Uh, when the original petition to list them on the endangered species list was submitted, it was actually to just list them as as, uh, threatened. Um, But after, that was a long wrangling, you know, five-year process as well to get them listed. But when it finally came down to it, the science was really clear, and NOAA did take the extra step to list them as endangered, which is, um, I always say it's a dubious uh, distinction, um, because it, what that meant is that the science showed that they were even more, more endangered, uh, more threatened, that, how do I say it, in worse shape than just listing them as threatened. They were needing that additional protection of being uh, listed as endangered, which is the highest designation that a plant or animal can get. Um, and so the federal government, when, when pushed, does tend to do the right thing, um, at least so far. So we'll see what happens with uh, some different lawsuits that are happening uh, with regard to salmon um, and salmon abundance uh, that NOAA is also responsible for. We'll see how that uh, how they come down on that. But I think people holding uh, the the government uh, feet to the fire is is really important and having public engagement is really, really important. So.
2: Yeah. And I'll, I'll add on that public engagement note, since we're talking about how long <laughs> the critical habitat designation took. Um, and as, as you both know, like the the pros and cons of having a government that relies very much on public input is that it it does take longer than often we would like it to, but it is because they take the time to ask for public input and review on these proposed measures, which does give us a chance to weigh in with some of that science that Giles mentioned that that shows that the government needs to do more or go farther or, you know, do something um, beyond what was requested and the the critical habitat delay was definitely an unnecessarily long uh, period of time for a lot of bureaucrat- bureaucratic reasons and they were waiting on, on data to be analyzed um, and it should have happened a lot faster, but there were opportunities for the public to speak up and weigh in and that is a unique aspect again of how these laws function and then how our, our government functions so it's it's good good and a bad thing
0: <laughs> yes for sure yeah i think all this information was definitely really helpful and just also shows us how important it is to 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 be an active participant in your political systems and make your concerns known. Um, but it'll be interesting to follow this project over the next couple of years and see, you know, what we learn from it. I'm sure we'll learn a lot, even if it doesn't turn out the way that we intended it to. Awesome. Well, thank you. thank you both for being here. I really appreciate it. And thank you for bearing with me through my COVID brain right now um, and carrying this conversation. I definitely appreciate it.
2: <laughs> no problem. You can, I mean, you get us together. We'll We'll talk for hours and <laughs> just go back and forth on wind and fisheries and critical habitat and all kinds of stuff
0: (laughs) nice yeah thank you for having us yeah Yeah, thank you erica of course